Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Good morning, everyone. It's a privilege to read to you from the scripture this morning. Um, we are reading together from Acts 15, verse 1 to 41. This is God's word, and it is eternally true. Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. When Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. Therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail conversion of the Gentiles and were bringing great joy to all the brethren. When they, all arri- when they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. After they had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brethren, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. All the people kept silent and they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they had stopped speaking, James answered saying, Brethren, listen to me. Simeon had related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. With this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After these things, I will return, and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen. And I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from long ago. Therefore, it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. For Moses, from ancient generations, has in every city those who preach him, since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch, with Paul and Barnabas, Judas called Barsabas and Silas, leading men among the brethren, and they sent this letter by them. The apostles and their brethren, who are elders, to the brethren in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, who are from the Gentiles, greetings. 
since we have heard that some of our number to whom we gave no instruction have disturbed you with their words, unsettling your souls, it seemed good to us, having become of one mind, to select men to send to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials, that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols, from blood, and from things strangled, and from fornication. If you keep yourselves free from such things, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent away, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. When they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Judas and Silas, also being prophets themselves, encouraged and strengthened the brethren with a lengthy message. After they had spent time there, they were sent away from the brethren in peace to those who had sent them out. But it seemed good to Silas to remain there. But Paul and Barnabas stayed at Antioch, teaching and preaching with many others also the word of the Lord. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Barnabas wanted to take John, called Mark, along with them also. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along, but deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another, and Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord, and he was traveling through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches." This is God's, this is the word of the Lord. Well, there you have it. Lengthy messages bring joy and encouragement. That's my main point today. I'm going to go on at some length about that. Actually, something occurred to me this week, and that is, we're talking about events that take place in a particular place as we go through the book of Acts. And that particular place is suffering right now as the result of an earthquake, Turkey, Syria. And while I don't think Antioch or Galatia, the regions we've been focused on recently, or Jerusalem are in the quake, the the zone, the red zone, certainly people all over that region are suffering and being displaced, and we should lift them up in prayer. So let's go to the Lord together in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, You are sovereign over all things, and your intentions are mysterious and often unknowable and inscrutable. But we know that you are good and wise, and so we declare that to be true. And we lift up to you, Lord, those who in Syria and Turkey are uh, suffering or grieving or displaced or hungry or needy or broken or torn because of the earthquake and its aftershocks. Lord, be merciful. Help them. Turn many to you. Strengthen and help your church there in this time. And give them the ability and the will 
to work hard to minister to those who are in need and to exhibit the love and compassion of their Savior by doing these things. We do pray that they would find many receptive people as trials and troubles often bring into our hearts a fit state of mind and frame to hear the truth. I pray that that would be true and that the gospel would make great advances even through these times of suffering and sorrow. Be merciful, Lord. Grant these things, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Coming back today to Acts 15, the Council of Jerusalem. This is a hugely important chapter in the scriptures. It's one of the nerve centers or theological nerve centers of the Bible where a lot of threads are coming together and being dealt with. If you can get your head around a passage like Acts 15, which is actually not easy, you can get your head around a lot in the scriptures. Last week we talked about um, what this passage has to teach about ecclesiology. Ecclesiology is the area of theology that pertains to the church, the nature of the church, the structure of the church, ecclesiology. And, and that we saw that this was an influential passage in the development of the Presbyterian form of church government back at the time of the Reformation, and this form of government that we try to live out and practice here. This week, I want to come back to this same passage and focus on a couple other areas of theology. I'm going to throw a big word at you here in a second. A couple of other areas of theology that find expression in, here in this chapter. One is soteriology, and the other is pastoral theology. We see both of these things being grappled with. Soteriology, that comes from the Greek word for salvation or savior. So when we're talking about soteriology, we're talking about the doctrines or the teachings in the scriptures related to the way of salvation. And that's very central to what's being dealt with at this council of Jerusalem. That there are various competing claims made about how we, be, how we, we come to be saved, what's necessary for salvation. And the council takes a look at this and makes judgments about it. We want to see where they land. And then there's also expressions of pastoral theology. Pastoral theology is the outworking of biblical truth in the day-to-day -day life of the church. And every congregation exists in a context or a setting or a place, and that setting and place has its own unique pressures, unique to its time and circumstances. And the council, while they're making judgments about certain matters of theology, they, all have, they also have to keep in mind the state of the church, the needs of the church, the pressures on the church, and they, have to, they can't just make decisions in a vacuum. They also have to chart a way forward, a way of peace and unity for the churches. And so they're dealing with both of these things as a council. Well, the first half of this chapter is where we see the soteriological salvation issues being talked about and grappled with, right immediately with verse 1. Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Right away, a claim about the way of salvation, and that's a contrary claim to the teaching of Paul and Barnabas who have just come home from a two to three year missionary journey where they have been proclaiming the gospel of Jesus to both Jews and Gentiles. And the Gentiles have been responding with eagerness and joy to the message of forgiveness through Jesus Christ. And Paul and Barnabas have been organizing new churches on new covenant terms with Jews and Gentiles, with a majority of Gentiles in the equation, not requiring circumcision or the dietary laws 
or ceremonies of the law for admission and participation in these communities. They come home, they give their report about their, what God has done through them to the churches. It brings joy to the brothers, but not to everybody. So certain men down in Jerusalem at this time are hearing also these reports, hearing rumors about what's going on, and they are not happy. <laughs> they are very unsettled by this. They have certain views about the way the church should be built, the way the kingdom of God should advance, and that is by making the world Jewish. That's their commitment and certain uh, viewpoint. And they're so bothered by what they hear that they enact their own plan of evangelism and mission. And that is a plan to go follow behind the, the Apostle Paul and Barnabas and clean up the, the mess that they think they've made and correct the errors as they see them that Paul and Barnabas have introduced into the church. So they go to Galatia. We know this because the book of Galatians exists. And Paul is like, he's, while he's hot furlough back in Antioch, he gets word that those dear saints that he has labored among and spilled his blood to plant seeds of life in their hearts. They've been led astray by other teachers who are claiming, no, you must be circumcised. And Paul writes a very intense and desperate pastoral letter up to those churches up there, pleading with them, whatever you're hearing, stop. <laughs> don't trust it. Even if I come and start preaching a different gospel than I originally preached to you, don't listen to me. In fact, if you get circumcised, I know you're being pressured to do it. If you get circumcised, that's as good as abandoning faith in Jesus Christ. Don't do it. Pretty intense letter. Other men from this sect of the Pharisees, which hold these views, also come to Antioch while Paul and Barnabas are there. And we know from Galatians that it brought incredible pressures, even beyond what Luke tells us here in Acts. Incredible pressures. Paul and Barnabas end up debating with these men. In verse 2, it says they had great dissension and debate with them. Clearly not a debate that's going anywhere <laughs> or making progress, but, also, but very unsettling to the church. You know, this is just, these are very competing views, irreconcilable theories or views, approaches to salvation and the message of the gospel. And so the, the church decides, here's what we need to do. We need to create a delegation. We need to send them down to Jerusalem, and hopefully they can work this out in consultation with the apostles and the elders down there. So maybe they can help settle this dispute and clear it up. So Paul and Barnabas are made part of this delegation, and they pack their bags and head down south to Jerusalem. And we see in verse 3 how they use their travel time. As they're stopping along the way in Phoenicia and Samaria, they're, telling, they're using the opportunity to encourage the brethren by telling them the great things God has done um, through their ministry in Turkey and Cyprus. When they come to Jerusalem, they're received by the church and the apostles and the elders. That's verse 4. And they proceed to report to them all that God had done with them in the course of their travels. And this, uh, after they've concluded their report of their work and their teaching, then the, the opposite view gets a chance to state its, its case. Verse 5, some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them, these Gentiles, and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. So Paul and Barnabas, this is all very wonderful. I'm sure we're all very thrilled 
by what you've accomplished, but you have not gone nearly far enough. In fact, it's woefully lacking the work that you have done because you haven't, where's, where's the covenant? Where's the law of Moses? Where's circumcision, the sign of the covenant in your gospel and in the, your requirements for church participation? What are you doing, man? So there you have the two sides presented. You have Paul and Barnabas and their teaching and the, the, the results of their teaching, the joy of the Gentiles believing, and then you have the critiques of their evangelism and their witness on the part of these Judaizing um, Pharisee, Pharisees, men of the sect of the Pharisees. And those are not insignificant differences. They really are irreconcilable views and opinions, interpretations of what God is doing, what he's up to. In verse 6, the apostles and the elders come together after hearing both sides, and they try to untangle this knot, sort through it, and it says that there is much debate, and then finally Peter stands up, and he weighs in. Now, this is Peter's final scene in the book of Acts, his final speech and, and contribution as far as Luke is concerned. Peter stands up, and he takes everybody through, once again, he's probably told this story a lot, but he takes everybody through, once again, his experience at the house of Cornelius and how God led him there and what happened. And he, he draws some really weighty and pointed conclusions from it. We've never heard him do this before. He adds quite a lot of weight um, to what he says and starts to make judgments and accusations actually about what the spirit is doing, what God meant as he took him to Cornelius' house and what he was up to there and what it means for the church. This is Peter's big gift to you and me. Because he really does, I think, as I read this chapter, carry the day. It's just, James stands up later and you know, sort of issues the, the official uh, judgment of this council. But it's really, I mean, Peter's, the weight of Peter's arguments here are just huge. Let's look at it together, starting in verse 7. And notice as we go through this, the emphasis that Peter puts on God. God's volition, God's action, God's will and choice. Verse 7. Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you. God did, not man. If it was up to me, I would never have gone to Cornelius' house. You remember the visions that he sent and the, the signs that confirmed? I mean, it was like, what could I do? God was leading me there. God made a choice among you. And here's the choice that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. Nobody saw that coming, but God made that choice and he did it. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them. So even as I'm speaking, before I have got to the end of my sermon, God, who judges the hearts and knows that these are people that have faith, that he has given the gift of faith to, before I even conclude my sermon, he adds to them this confirming sign of his blessing and confirmation of his, of his approval and acceptance of them. And that sign is the gift and blessing and the outpouring and power of the Holy Spirit upon them and the gift of tongues and prophecy. God did that. And here's what I think he's saying when he says that he made no distinction between us and them cleansing their hearts by faith. I think what he's saying is, listen, 
We got the same blessing. We got it in our circumcised state, and they got it in their uncircumcised state. Now, what are you going to make of that? Except that God has approved of them as they are and is not requiring. God does not require them to be circumcised. That's the clear conclusion that Peter is drawing from, from this, his experience there at the house of Cornelius. So, verse 10. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the, God to the test? You're, you're here, you think you're arguing with Paul and Barnabas. You're actually arguing with God. Why are you putting him to the test? Why are you challenging him? By placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. That's a weighty statement. But we believe that we're saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. We've got to unpack that for a minute, okay? Peter's just said some very strong things there. And, I, and it's very important that we take care in our understanding of what he is saying and what he's not saying. It sounds like, the way he puts it, that he's really speaking quite disparagingly about the law, like he's speaking negatively about the law itself. Does that not sound like Peter when he says, when he likens it to a heavy burden or a yoke that nobody's ever been able to bear up under? Doesn't it sound like he's speaking ill of God's law? It does. And in fact, that's not unique in the writings of the New Testament. (laughs) You're going to encounter that kind of, that sort of speech, that seeming disparagement or ill-speaking about the law of God, the law of Moses. We got to take care how we interpret that because it can trip people up a lot and get you way off course if you're not careful about what Peter is and is not saying. You can conclude from that, and many have concluded, that the gospel does away with law and that there's no more law for a Christian. Law-free Christian life. Live as I want. Seriously, that's a lot of people. And a lot of people feel justified in holding that view or living that way because of statements like this. So we have to work hard to understand what he's actually saying. Here's what I think Peter's actually saying. I'll go ahead and give you uh, the solution to the riddle and then try to prove it, okay? Peter is not saying and never would say anything negative about God's law. It's God's law. He is, as Paul will be, and others will be, willing and ready to say negative things about those or certain men who abuse God's law. And that's what he's addressing. He's not addressing something negative about God's law, some fault of God or of the law, but the fault of men who misuse and misapply and mistreat and violate the law of God. Okay? Why would Peter never speak ill of the law of God? Well, his master Jesus upheld the law and honored the law, so much so that he said, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And Peter's companion Paul in 1 Timothy says, the law is good if one uses it lawfully. So if we assume that Peter and Paul don't have a fundamental disagreement or difference of views, let's just consider for a second, what is a lawful and good use of God's law, 
even today for a Christian. What does the law itself say how it's to be used? What is the promise that the law makes? Well, back in Luke uh, Luke 28, quoting the Old Testament law, Leviticus, it says this. This is the law as it speaks. Do this and live. Do this and live. That's the promise of the law. And if you, sounds good, right? Do this and live. And then to put it negatively, in Deuteronomy 27, it says this, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law to do them. All the things. Cursed is anybody who violates the law in any particular. Comes under a curse and judgment. So the law says, keep me perfectly and you will live. That's apparently, according to the law, a lawful use of the law. Keep me perfectly, and I promise you'll live. Now, is that possible? Is it possible? So are we all under the curse of the law? The Pharisees thought it was possible. This is their This is their big mistake. The Pharisees believed it was possible for them. They they heard the challenge of the law, do this in the live, and they thought, I accept. I'm up for it. They looked at the mountain that that it presented to climb, and they thought, I got the legs for that. And they, but they, they sorely underestimate and devalue the, the full weight of the law of God. How devastating it is. How, just exactly how high. It looks, they might say it's a mountain. It's like flying to Mars. Or if it is like a mountain, they also sorely underestimate or overestimate their own ability. What, what they don't realize is like, okay, I can maybe see the top of it up there, but I have no arms and no legs. They don't realize this about themselves. They inflate their own ability in their own eyes. So the only conceivable way that they can look at the challenge of the law and think, oh, I can, I'm up for that, I can do that, is by defining God's laws and commandments so narrowly as to almost define them out of existence and to surround them by all kinds of self-righteous rules that you know, create a buffer around God's laws to protect themselves from ever, you know, ever being accused of having come near violating one of them. That's Pharisaism. That's what's going on in Jerusalem in the days of Jesus, and it continues to live on after him, even in the church among the sect of the Pharisees who have claims to Jesus and are members in the church. What does Jesus make of the Pharisees' attempts at keeping the law? He is never harder on anybody than that group. So intense, excoriates them. Woe to you, blind guides, hypocrites. Uh, Read Matthew 23. I don't have time to take you through it, but that's where Jesus issues all those woes to the Pharisees, and he exposes their hypocrisy. They're like, they clean the outside of the cup, but on the inside, they're like just full of putrefaction, gross things. They're like whitewashed tombs. On the outside, it looks real pretty. Look at that beautiful monument. On the inside, it's full of corruption and dead man's bones. That's an expression of how they use the law. 
They use it to look good in front of men. They use it unlawfully. What does that mean? What's, the un, what's an unlawful use of the law of God? An unlawful use is to try to use it to establish your righteousness. For a sinner to take the challenge that the law puts is an unlawful use of the law. Isn't that amazing? Why is that challenge in there? Have you ever thought about it? Why does it make the promise, do this and live? Well, there is actually one man who was up for the challenge. Praise God. It's there to prove that Jesus Christ is better than Adam. And he succeeds where Adam failed. And he faced greater law, in a sense. You know, there's a lot more commandments. But also, he faced temptations, more temptations than Adam faced. And he stared Satan down. And he didn't sin once. Isn't that beautiful? (laughs) Jesus is up to the challenge. He climbed the mountain. But it's unlawful for you to ever attempt it as a way of obtaining favor with God. Do you hear me? This is very important to understand. Because the purpose of the law is to prove to you that's hopeless. That's the purpose of the law. The great purpose of the law is to make sin utterly sinful and to completely empty you of any internal self-hope so that it brings you to the place where you realize, I have, I despair. I have nothing. It is hopeless. Not only do I have, there's a mountain and I have no arms and legs to climb it, I'm dead in transgressions and sins. I'm completely brought to the end of myself by the law of God. That's its great purpose. So what a horrible perversion of the, of the law of God to use it and turn it into a system of establishing my righteousness before men? Oh, it's the worst thing imaginable. The law's purpose, Paul describes it in his letters as a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. Its purpose is to bring us to the end of ourselves so that we, there's nothing in here that I got that can please God, nothing, and nothing I can do about it either. So that we then start looking outside of ourselves for some other solution, a solution that God in his mercy has abundantly supplied and is gracious and willing to give, Jesus' own righteousness. Jesus' atonement for sin. And we can have that credited to our account. And we can walk around in the assurance that God, as far as he's concerned, we have fulfilled it all. Because Jesus has fulfilled it all. That's the gospel. And the law has a really important role to play in the gospel. And that's to make us pant for Jesus. But we have no hope apart from him. And then there he is in all his glory, 
our champion, our deliverer, our savior. Now, if you step into Jesus and you receive of that because you despair of yourself and you trust in Jesus and you live in the assurance that, that God has accepted me and forgiven me and there's nothing I can add to that and there's nothing I can take away from it, that's the gospel. If you, if you get there, if the law gets you there and God grants you faith to accept and receive the offer of Jesus, well, then the law also springs to life and has other things that become lawful for you. And that is that now it presents itself as a, you, I want to please my father. How do I do that? Well, there's the law that teaches me how to do it. I don't have any ambitions of doing it perfectly. <laughs> I know I won't, <laughs> but I also know God accepts, accepts me. And every day I just love him for his kindness, for his mercy. Oh, what mercy. And I want to do everything I can to please him. And there it is, the, the path, the model, the pattern, his own holy character. I want to be like him. And he's given me the law to teach me about his character. So is the law good if it does those things for you? Would Peter not know that? You know, is, is he really speaking negatively about the law? No. No. The law is good if one uses it lawfully. What he's addressing are men who are putting pressure on the saints, antagonizing them, corrupting the gospel because they've corrupted the law. And so he's really addressing abuses of the law. And this is this, just keep that in mind as you, as you read through the scriptures in the New Testament, you some, suddenly start to think, well, what's the, what are they saying that sounds very negative about the law? They're dealing with a, with certain, a false view of the law that was so prevalent. And whenever they come up against it in their writings, they're just ready to, <laughs> they just get antagonistic. Okay? And it's good because they're protecting us. What about the ceremonies of the law? That's actually what they focus on here. The ceremonies of the law, the way they function in the Old Testament, was to, they have a sort of different role. They come along after the moral law is meant to crush us. They're there to, to assure us that nevertheless God's kind. He's in covenant with us. That's circumcision. And he has provided a way for reconciliation and forgiveness through him through by way of sacrifice, through a mediator, the priests. That's what the ceremonies are there for. They're there to point forward to Jesus Christ for those who are laboring, waiting for his coming. Even those they corrupt, these Pharisees. And they even make more out of that than the law of God as marks of righteousness. And they're wanting to impose all of that on the church of Jesus Christ. Do you understand what I'm saying? Peter also addresses here a really important question very clearly. I didn't notice this at first until yesterday evening, and it just really jumped out at me. How, are the, how were the Jews saved under the law? How were the Jews saved under the law? How are the Gentiles and the Jews saved now under the gospel? 
The answer is that Peter gives us is one in the same way. There's only one way of salvation. There's only ever been one hope of salvation, and that is God's own provision of a Savior. We see that in verse 11. Look at it. So after making this claim, he goes on in verse 11. He says, we're saved. We believe we're saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. So we, the Jews, are saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. And he's actually saying that that's always been true. In the Old Testament, the faithful looked forward to the Messiah who was to come. And now we look back on his accomplished and finished work. But we're all looking in the same, at the same target, the same thing, the same solution, and that is Jesus himself. Is that your hope? If so, if your hope is in Jesus, I want you to stop and consider this. If your hope is in Jesus Christ, it is because God has used his law to bring you there. You've come under the conviction of your sin. Otherwise, you have no understanding of why Jesus exists or what good he gives to you. If you trust in Jesus and have hope in him, it's because God has given his law and used it in your life to bring you to a place where you feel your need of him. So would you be thankful for God's law? I wish somebody had been able to teach me that when I was young. I, I, for so many years, I had no idea how to resolve this apparent co conflict between the law of God and the grace of God, between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It was just totally befuddling to me. Well, this is how it is. God's law is gracious. We corrupt it in all sorts of bad ways for our, in our, in our self-interest. But God's law is gracious, and it has a gracious intent. We should be thankful for it. And one of the things I love about John Calvin, I know I get made fun of for quoting John Calvin a lot, it's because when I finally started reading John Calvin, I, I realized I just, he likes God's law, and he makes me feel appreciative of it <laughs> because he's using it constantly to, sh to drive me to God's mercy. He actually thinks I have a problem, and that problem is sin. <laughs> and that it's good for a pastor and a writer to make me aware of it, so that I can then all the more flee to Jesus. Well, that's Peter's big speech and contribution, and it's very weighty <laughs> what Ian's actually saying there. He's actually accusing them of testing God and oppressing the church. Well, there's more discussion after that. More stories from Paul and Barnabas, building on what Peter has said. And then James, they all stop speaking, and James stands up to speak. And he concludes the matter, rendering the judgment of the council. He does add one really important thing, though, himself. And that is, he brings in God's word as a confirmation to the experiences of Peter and Paul and Barnabas. And that's very important to realize. Your experience may be all well and good and accurate as anything, but how do you know? You test it by the word of God. And that's what James brings to bear. He brings up this prophecy of Amos. There's lots of prophecies of the Old Testament he could have turned to. He turns to this one, which promises the rebuilding of the tabernacle of David in a future day. 
and at a moment when the Gentiles will seek the Lord. And he says, that's, that's, and that's, God established that from long ago. That's what the prophet himself says. This God is speaking, he says, I've established that from ages past, from long ago. And so this is proof positive from the scriptures that what Peter has said is true. James goes on to render this judgment. He says in verse 19, Therefore it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles. So no, we are not going to impose these rules upon them. God has not required it. We are not going to require it. But, verse 20, and this is where he moves into his pastoral theology mode. Okay? Here's what I think we should do. Verse 20. What I recommend is that we write to them, the Gentiles, that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. And why? He gives a reason. Why? Verse 21. For, because... Moses, from ancient generations, has in every city those who preach him, since he's read in the synagogues every Sabbath. This is James going into pastoral theology mode. We know what we're not going to require of the, of the Gentiles. We've established that, and that gets one big question off the table, but that does not resolve all the questions. We still have a problem, and what is that problem? We're still left with Jews and Gentiles. And in every city... The Jews and the Gentiles are all over the world. We're just working this out here in Jerusalem, but they're all over the world. And if this gospel is going to go all over the world, Paul and Barnabas have shown us that it can. It's going to go all over the world. These tensions are going to be all over the world because Moses is preached in the synagogues every Sabbath. And his proposal for that problem is that we write to the Gentiles and we tell them, we're not going to trouble you with these other things, but these four things are things we want you to abstain from. Because that's going to help. That's going to help hold the church together. It's going to help make this project work. What are the things and where on earth do they come from? Things contaminated by idols from fornication, from what is strangled, and from blood. You know what? It's not completely clear where, those four th- where he comes up with those four things. Isn't that interesting? There's been some proposals, lots of proposals, lots of ink spilled over this one. Where does James come up with these four things? What proof text or what corner of scripture do they come from? One proposal is that they come from Leviticus 17 and 18, which are laws that God Uh, put in place to govern the Gentile sojourners who are living among the people of God in Israel. There's specific laws pertaining just to Gentiles while they're living among the people of God. But you know, that sort of works and sort of doesn't work. It's kind of like a square peg in a round hole. A lot of the square fits in the hole or seemingly (laughs) lines up with it, but the corners just don't go through. That solution's kind of like that. There's some problems. It doesn't quite line up. Other people have pointed back earlier than Leviticus, um, earlier than the law, to the, to the days of Moses, or not to the days of Noah, and to the, God's covenant with Noah. Again, some of those things are there, and some of them are not. It's 
a square peg, round hole problem. There's not a neat and tidy answer. Here's the best, well then if you add, add to that fact, the complicating factor that some of these things seem like moral commandments and some of them seem like more ceremonial things and here's a law, here are rules put in place that were things where we want to require of the Gentiles and we're left wondering, are they still enforced? Are they still in place? And I mean, fornication, that sounds like that's still in place, but what about the other things? Here's the best solution that I've encountered. I'm pretty satisfied with it. I hope it's helpful to you. These are four aspects of Gentile idolatry. All four of those things, you can find evidence from pagan worship, the practices of pagan worship, which the Gentiles are known the whole world over for, and that's part of why they stink to the Jews. Every one of those things is a, was a feature of pagan worship, including sex. Strangulation of sacrifices as opposed to bloodletting. All the things. And of course, they're giving up their pagan idolatry. That's, that's of the essence of coming to Christ and joining the church. But they're still Gentiles and they're still living among Gentiles and this is going to be one of the challenges is the, these Jews, James knows the Jews, because of the teaching of Moses all over the world, they're going to be especially sensitive to these things. And Gentiles, you better stay as far away from them as you can because we want this to work. Does that make sense? This is pastoral theology. It's pastoral advice and wisdom to the Gentiles. It's not, it does come with authority, but it's pastoral authority. The question about whether these things continue or, or is still in force today, well, it's complicated because, of course, fornication is. But if you understand it as a function of paganism, which itself was dying away at this time and being replaced with Christian faith and worship, and with the Jewish sensitivities to these things, they're working as best they can to give advice to the Gentiles about how they need to be very sensitive and aware of the concerns of the Jews about them, which are valid, <laughs> for whatever reason, valid. And they need to be aware of this and even keep away from the appearance of evil or of idolatry, okay? This is so pervasive, though, in their life. It's, it's, it's very, it turns out to be very challenging. I mean, paganism and idolatry wasn't just like something you did on Sunday. It was like, <laughs> it was everywhere. You couldn't even shop at the market without buying meat or risking buying meat that had been offered first to an idol as an act of worship. One of the answers to whether these things are in force, like blood, it's easy for us to talk about blood because we don't, I don't think blood dishes are, are a feature of our cuisine here. They are a little in, in Scotland and England and some on the continent. They're blood dishes, right? But one of these things that he says not to, to stay away from is blood. And that's a ceremonial thing going back to the, to the days of Noah, where, where God under Noah to Noah, says and establishes a principle 
a principle that's necessary to help undergird and support a whole era of sacrificial worship. And that principle is don't eat blood because life is in the blood. Blood is a symbol of life. And that's important for all the symbolism that I intend for sacrifices in worship to point to Jesus. Jesus has come and fulfilled all of that. But here the Jews still are sensitive to these things because there it is in God's word. It's preached every Sabbath day. Are you with me? These are complicated things. Um, And I've lost track of where I'm going. Denver, where was I going? Blood pudding. Denver asked me last night, so are you going to preach on blood pudding tomorrow? (laughs) And I thought, well, I better, because Denver's wondering. (laughs) Can you eat blood sausage, blood pudding? I think you can. Because I think that that and a couple of other things here were temporary measures, pastoral measures of sensitivity for the sake of unity. Okay? We don't live in a sacrifice. Jesus has fulfilled the sacrificial system. We don't offer sacrifices anymore. But this is in a period of crossover where the old covenant is fading away. It's not like a light comes on or a, a, a switch gets flipped and then suddenly old covenant's gone and new covenant's there. I mean, there's, real, there's truth to that. But in the minds and hearts of the people, it's not clean like that. It, there's a period and a season. 20 years after this, God's going to really close, drop the curtain on it all. Because the, the, the temple which Jesus prophesied would be destroyed gets completely raised by the Romans. And there's never been a temple since. And sacrifices offered since. And God doesn't intend them ever to be. Because Jesus has come and he did his work and he fulfilled all the symbolism of the sacrifices. They were pointing to him and he's finished his work. He is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. If these are in part or in whole pastoral solutions for the sake of unity, what does that tell us? Unity is important in the church, okay? It should be, it's important to the Lord. It should be important to you and me. What are we willing to give up for the sake of peace and for the sake of our brothers? There's a lot of scripture about that. A lot of the New Testament is spent talking about our liberty in Christ and are calling us to be willing to surrender that liberty for the sake of love and peace and not offending or not putting a stumbling block in front of a weaker brother. Just before service, I read through 1 Corinthians 8. That's one of those chapters where Paul, the big champion of liberty, shows what he's willing to give up. And most men in here are going to cringe He says in 1 Corinthians 8, at the end of a long passage, he says, therefore, even though there's all, I know I have freedom. I know I can even eat meat sacrificed to an idol because an idol is nothing. I know, or here's what I'm ready to do. 
If food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again. That's how much I value and love peace in the church, unity among the brothers. I'll give up meat. That's saying something. What are you willing to give up? How much do we value unity? We all have our preferences. We have our different sense of what's permissible and not permissible. This comes up in so many ways. <laughs> Just thinking through them. We have families over for dinner and you want the kids out of your hair. You put on a movie. Well, right immediately you run into different opinions and views and sensitivities. And how do you approach that out of love, charity? Are we rubbing our liberties in each other's faces or are we, is our orientation ready to give it all up? Because it's not important. What's important is love and respecting one another, and helping one another, leaning in towards one another. Now, it's not an absolute rule, because Paul will also say, we don't let the weak oppress the strong, because <laughs> that's also a danger we ought to watch out for. So when we're talking about pastoral theology, we're talking about places where God holds us in tension, <laughs> and he gives us pushes on both sides. But I believe that what is going on here is best understood as pastoral situation, need for unity, difficulty all over the world, holding two very different groups together. Let's give the Gentiles some advice about how they can help be helpful to the Jews. Does that make sense? And let's, uh, let's learn from it that we ourselves should value and prize unity and be willing even to sit under rules and regulations from our pastors and elders, like masks, anybody? For the sake of unity and not let things divide us. Well, James' judgment and the proposed letter seems good to the apostles and, letters, uh, and elders and they draft the letter and they send it to the brothers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Wisely, they don't send it with Paul and Barnabas alone, but they appoint a couple of other men from the conference or the council to deliver it and to read it. I think that's very wise. And there's a very sweet commendation in this letter of Paul and Barnabas and their ministry where they're approved of officially. And that must be a great encouragement to them. But what, did the, what was the outcome of the letter when it was read in the churches? They rejoiced because of its encouragement. Very encouraging work that the men had done, defending their liberty in Christ Jesus. Well, we're going to come back next week for chapter 16 and the launching of Paul's second missionary journey. And I know we didn't cover the whole chapter, but that's sort of intentional. We're going to pick up that last little bit about Paul and Barnabas next week. Let's pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your word. Help us to understand it. Help us to know how to put it to use in our life. Give us a desire for unity and peace and a heart for our brothers, 
strong or weak. Give us a spirit of humility, which helps us to see and value truly one another as better than we are. Would that spirit reign among us here? And would you help us to love your law and not resent it, but willingly come under its difficult, painful ministry in our lives because it leads us to you and to salvation? And so, Lord, would you help us to learn to love your law like David loved it and to say with David that, oh, I love it. It's like my meditation day and night. It's sweeter than honey on my tongue and more valuable to me than gold. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.